Welcome to the Gathering Church's audio sermon. Thanks for listening. We have a special guest speaker with us this morning, Pastor Ed Grigorsik. Has been a friend of mine for over 20 years. Uh, I was only 10 when we first met. (laughs) We worked together at Promise Keepers Canada. I was part of the teaching faculty, and Ed at the time was coordinator extraordinaire, my wingman, and even my security detail at that one event. Thank you, Ed. Um, He later became a Canadian national manager of discipleship and national events for Promise Keepers Canada. Recently, Ed has served a number of churches as the interim lead pastor, providing a range of services and ministries for churches that are searching for new pastoral leadership. Today, Ed and Elizabeth are guests of the gathering. Welcome to you both. So before I read the scripture, would you please give them a warm gathering welcome to Ed and Elizabeth. Thank you. So let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. If you have a Bible, please open it to Psalm 73. Open your Bible or your Bible app to Psalm 73. I'll be reading just verses 25 to 28, so please follow along. This is the Word of God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for Ed and Elizabeth, for the ministry that you've given to them. And we pray now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will fill our brother, fill this servant of yours with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I pray that his words will be your words and your words will be his as we listen intently to the word of God preached this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, it's, it's great to be here with you today. We're going to be in Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms. Love it. So looking forward to that. So, you know, it, it is said that on average, the average person spends about 80 years on this earth, give or take, 80 years on this earth. And we actually spend about 26 of those years sleeping, believe it or not, and, and seven years just trying to get to sleep. Sometimes it feels like that in all compressed in one night, right? And then that leaves us with about 47 waking years of life. Right? And in the context of those waking years of life, in any given day, on any single given day, apparently we can think as many as 50,000 individual thoughts. Please don't ask me how they measure that, but so be it. And those thoughts then lead to, on an average, about 200 choices every single day. Many of which you don't even realize you're making, right? Because they're they're habits, they're habitual. You just just do them. They become habit-forming. So you see, those thoughts that form those habits are greatly influenced by our surroundings, by the circumstance we find ourselves in. 
and by the people within those circumstances. Greatly influenced those thoughts, those choices, so on and so forth. And, and it's not long, if we're not careful, that as those circumstances and people start influencing our thoughts, you know what begins to happen, at least with me? I start to compare. Right? You know, I start to compare, right? I compare my life with your life, my, my job with your job, what, what I have, like, like my stuff compared to you and what you have and your stuff. And, you know, and the thing about comparison, that if in my mind, if I win in that comparison, it can make me a little boastful, a little arrogant. But if in my mind, in that comparison, if I end up losing in that comparison, well, I, I, I end up becoming a little frustrated sometimes, maybe a little bittered and a little envious. Envy. It's a toxic thing. Envy. You know, uh, Webster's Dictionary defines envy this way. It says, envy is a, a chagrin or a discontent at someone else's good fortune. Pretty simple, right? You know that uncomfortable feeling that comes upon you when, when you look over there and you see that somebody else seems to be doing much better than you? Like it's a walk in the park over here compared to the struggles I'm enduring over there. You start to feel that envy. Man, I tell you, that's a toxic, toxic emotion. God's word warns us explicitly against envy. Listen to this, and I love this. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Man, I, I love that, man. I love God's word. Like he, the Lord just gets right to the heart of the matter, and he says, if you do this, if you persist in this way, you're going to bring a whole lot of unnecessary hurt upon yourself. Right? So there's a warning right from the Lord. In fact, Proverbs 23, 17 says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Amen. Amen. We can all use a little bit of fear of the Lord, right? It's not that I'm afraid, but, but I love the Lord, and I respect the Lord, and I want to revere God. Right? So why are you envious? <laughs> Don't I wish. So envy is something that happens if and when we're not prepared. And, we take a, and here's the thing about those circumstances that I refer to and envy that leads to those envy. See, what you see can distort your vision. You say, what, what do you mean, what, isn't that the same thing? Well, there's an overlap. But you see, when, if you allow that, if you allow those circumstances and the people and so on and so forth, it can actually distort your vision. We're going to see that in this psalm. Psalm 73. Now, I, I love the psalms. I'm sure you're all familiar with the psalms. There's a, 150 of them, a collection of praise and Prayer and, and calling out in, in authentic emotion to God. That's why they've been so sweet over the, over the years and years and years. And I read at least one every single day. I would encourage you to do the same. I can find myself right smack dab in the middle of any psalm that I read. I love it. And theologian Walter Brueggemann, in his book called The Spirituality of the Psalms, he says this. He says that all the psalms, most of them, can be categorized under one of three categories. There are the Psalms of orientation. Things are, are good, oriented, as they should be. Then there are the, the Psalms of 
disorientation. When man is of no fault of your own, like, like things just kind of went off the rails. There's just this whole lot of confusion, a whole lot of uncertainty that's causing a whole lot of pain. Does that sound familiar? Kind of describes these last two years, doesn't it? Then there is the Psalms of new orientation. And what is the new orientation? It's right back to the future. It's right back to refocusing on God. I mean, man, man, we see see examples of that through Scripture, don't we? Through the dark night of the soul, through the wilderness experience, God uses them to form and fashion us in the image of Jesus Christ, and he uses that to wean us off of the world and all the lies that the world has to offer, plenty, and refocus us back as citizens of heaven from which we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Back on heaven. There's a fourth category of psalms that that, that I would add, and they are the imprecatory psalms. Psalms of imprecation. Well, well, what's imprecation? Imprecation is just like expressing this anger, you know, this this frustration. It's bitterness. That leads to, like, you know, just calling down a curse from heaven. Like, Lord, just, just strike them down. We see examples of that in some of the psalms, and, and, and the language is quite graphic, isn't it? That's not a good headspace to stay in. It's good to lament. It's good to get that off your chest. It's very much so. To have trusted, mature men and women, Christian men and women in your life who, who will hold you accountable. And by the way, that accountability is merely meant to help you fulfill your responsibility. It's not a checklist of you did bad, you did bad. This is to help each other. Right? So, so we see examples of that. And, 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 and so why do I tell you that? Because we're going to see all four of those categories in Psalm 73. Orientation disorientation, a new orientation, and even expressions of anger and bitterness. We're going to see that this morning in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 written by Asaph. Well, who's this guy Asaph? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) He was one of the Levites, so he he could actually draw his lineage back all the way back to Aaron. He was one of the Levites assigned by King David to be a worship leader in the tabernacle. So Asaph and King David were contemporaries. In fact, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 37 says this, David left Asaph and his brothers in the tent, in the tabernacle, before the ark of the Lord to minister regularly before the ark as each day required. So he, he, was, he had a, a high position of esteem and leadership. He was one of the worship leaders that led God's people into praise and prayer. And you can read in great detail about his, his, his responsibilities in 1 Chronicles 16. I encourage you to do that later. And both David and Asaph, contemporaries, were skilled musicians and poets and singers. And they expressed their heart before the Lord, both of them. Asaph is also mentioned as a seer, S-E-E-R, a seer or a prophet. In fact, Psalm 50 and Psalms 73 to 83 are called the Psalms of Asaph. So 
So God highly esteems this man. And, and those words are recorded for posterity for eternity. He was a gifted man, Asaph. He understood where his gift came from. And he used his music and his praise and his gift to communicate God's word. Specifically, God's goodness. To declare the goodness of God to a needy people then, now, and for eternity. So join me in a word of prayer that we're going to strap on our seatbelts, man. We're going to dive right in. So join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you. What a beautiful morning it is. The sun's shining, songs of praise. Oh, man, my heart just resounds with the, the report of the church planning endeavors and how the gathering is supporting that. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Well done, church. Keep going. So God, now as we set all those things aside, some good, some even better, may we focus our hearts and minds on this word, Lord, on your word this morning. God, that each of us would find our way in this, not just in it, but through it, for the glory of your name, God. So help us, God, to, 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 to be better uh, in our praise and worship and our love for you than even as we entered into this building this morning. It doesn't just end here, it just begins here. So lead us, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. All right. Are you ready? We're going to go through all 28 verses. I promise you we'll get through it. Verse 1. Here we go. Verse 1. This is an incredible, powerful declaration. Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We've got to stop right there. Really, Pastor Ed? Really? We stop? Yeah, we've got to stop right there. This verse is not just a literary introduction to the rest of the psalm. It is that, but this is a powerful theological declaration. He says, truly God is good. Truly, me, you know, most assuredly, man, you could take this to the bank. God, God, Yahweh in heaven above is good. Okay, we get that, right? I get that. I hear that word. I see that. I read it. And oftentimes, you know, in my mind, quickly, I just come to the the conclusion that good means that it's the opposite of bad. Well, that's true, but it's far, far more detailed, far more nuanced than merely the opposite of bad. All right? So just, just think with me. Keep your finger there in 73, but think with me. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, sin had not entered into the equation. Believe it or not. That happens in Genesis chapter 3. The proclivity to sin existed, but it had not yet occurred. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. That's always a good place to start. Whenever you're encountering anything of God's word, go back to that. Why? Because that's God's intent. And he will restore things, a new creation. It will be as it was. So Genesis chapter 1, we read the seven-day creation account. Right? Remember that? God created the heavens above, and it was... Is good. The Hebrew word for good is tov, T-O-V. Many Jewish people still to this day greet each other with that greeting. They say, masal tov, good fortune. That's what it means. So the Hebrew word is tov, right? So we, we read the seven-day creation. Account. God created the heavens above it. It was good. God created the, the, the earth below and the, the birds in the airs and the, the animals and the fish, and it was good. Right? And then God's 
crowning glory. God created man. God created mankind. Men and women. And there are aspects of God's image that are unique unto men. There are aspects of God's image that are unique unto women. And together, when we complement each other, we form a more complete picture of who God is. Not compete. Complement. And then we read this in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. It says this, And then on the seventh day, God saw all that he made, everything that he had made, and it was very good. Meaning, Everything that God created is good, is tov. And when everything was spoken into existence and sustained by the word of his power, when all the intricate harmonies are formed and fashioned together and work in beautiful unity, God's goodness echoes throughout all creation. So good is very well done. It's orderly. It's perfect. It's harmony or harmonious. It's a masterpiece. I know we're spending a lot of time on that, but, but we got to come to terms with verse 1 to, so that the rest of the psalm will make sense because that's the 30,000-foot perspective. That's the macro. Now he's going to go down into the micro. But look, that's a declaration. But look, look what else he says in verse 1. He says to Israel, that's it? Just to Israel? God is good only to Israel? No. To Jew and Gentile alike. That's a declaration. God is good. But now he moves from declaration to a distinction. You notice that? To Israel, to God's covenant people. Remember back again, back in Genesis? God chooses Abraham. He says, from you, from you, from your descendants will be numerous as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. And those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. And to you will be given the very oracles of God. And you and your people will not only declare, but you will demonstrate the goodness of God. That's what he's talking about here. He says to, to Israel, to those who are pure at heart, declaration, distinction, and now he's talking about desire. Right there in verse 1. And, and, and don't lose sight of this fact, folk, that this, that this desire is linked to their identity as children of God, to this distinction. It's not the other way around. Because when it goes the other way around, we get ourselves on a whole lot of trouble. What do I mean? Well, you know, today I desire this, so I identify myself as that. A week from now, a month, a year from now, my desires may change completely, so now I, know I no longer identify myself as that. I identify myself as something different yet again. We're seeing that play out before our very eyes these days. So your, your desire is linked to your identity as a child of God, not the other way around. There's a whole lot of stuff packed there in verse 1. All right, let's go. Let's keep going. Keep that in the back of your mind. Keep that in your mind as we go through the rest of these verses. He says, truly God is good. Okay? Got it, Asaph. He says, but as for me, yeah, not so good. How come? My feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. Slip sliding away right into 
sin. Covetousness. Well, how so, Asaph, how so? Look at verse 3. Well, I was envious. You see how honest he is? This is just beautiful. He's not hiding behind any facade. He says, oh, I was envious. There's that word. That chagrin, uncomfortable feeling that comes upon you at someone else's good fortune, whether, whether real or perceived. He says, I was envious of the arrogant, you know, the boastful, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What you see can distort your vision. The vision that he just declared in. Verse 1. Look what he goes on to say. Verse 4, he says, They, they, those boastful and arrogant, he says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So what is he doing? Injecting some humor here? Fat and sleek? No, 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 no. These pangs, you know, have you ever had a hunger pang come upon you? Maybe you skipped a meal or something, right? And in that moment, man, there's just nothing else that matters, right? I just got to get to the fridge. You know, it's your appetite. You're just so very hungry. So why is he saying? He says, they, they, those who have more than enough, this was his and their greatest source of anxiety. It's called food insecurity. How am I going to feed my family? That's what he's talking about here. He's going right to the heart of the matter. And this was his greatest source of anxiety. Not like it is for us today, for most of us today, right? We could just take a trip down to a local grocery store, pick up some stuff, throw it in the cupboard, cupboards in the fridge. You get hungry, just walk down the hall. He didn't know. They didn't know from day to day. How am I going to put food on the table? How do I provide for my family? And by the way, folks, food insecurity is still a major issue today. I've traveled extensively through southern Ontario these last two years. There is not a community that I've been to that it hasn't and isn't currently experiencing major food insecurity problems. It still exists. So he's going right to the heart of the matter here, right? And he's saying, he's saying this was his greatest source of anxiety. But they, over here, it's a walk in the park over here, apparently, compared to the hardships he's enduring over here. Man, they got more than enough, as evidenced by the fact that they seem to be well-fed. He's as fat and sleek. i got to be careful. Verse 5, he said, They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. That's not entirely accurate, Asaph, because what you see distorts your vision. And this trouble that he's talking about, when he uses the word, the description, stricken, when you're stricken by trouble, it just comes upon you suddenly. Out of the blue, right? As of no fault of your own. Man, where did that come from? And then look at verse 6. He said, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. You know, when you wear a piece of jewelry, you wear a necklace, for instance, right? You wear it not so much for yourself, but you wear it so that others would see it and admire it. He's saying that these folks who are so prideful, they, they want you to see their pride and they want you to admire it. You know what he's talking about here in one word? Ego. He's talking about ego here. He said, and then look at verse 7, their, their eyes swell out through the fatness, through the abundance of this ego. Their hearts overflow with follies, with foolishness. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul says about foolishness? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Okay? So keep that in your mind. Okay, he goes on. He's going to continue. Now notice that, by the way. You notice where his gaze is? You notice where he's focusing? Have you noticed? It seems to be a, 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 a repetitive theme here. They, they, they. It's them. He's focused them. Verse 9. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. Ridicule. He's talking about mocking. You know, the interesting word, this word malice. It's a, it's a, have you ever heard the term malice of forethought? Legal term. Term basically means with great intent. It was intentional. Nothing accidental about it. They're mocking. They're ridiculing. His, that's his description. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Not only that, not only mocking and ridicule, but if you get in their way, they're going to hurt you. Better stand out of the way. <laughs> better get out of the way. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens, these know-it-alls. Their tongues strut through the earth. They've established themselves apparently as a higher authority than Yahweh in heaven above, or certainly any authority here on earth, or so it seems in his mind. Verse 11, and they say, now notice, verse 11, there's quotation marks. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? End quote. Likely means that Asaph would have heard them who were near to God and now have gone further away from God use these very words to justify their actions. Right? Ah, you know what, Asaph, man, it's too hard over here. It's a walk in the park over here, man. Let's just cash in our chips here. Let's go hitch our wagon over there, whatever metaphor you want to use. It's just too tough over here. God doesn't know. Come on. He doesn't care. Let's get, let's get a piece of the action while we can. Eat, drink, and be merry. It, it happens. It happens. Then he goes on to say, verse 12, Behold, Check this out, he says. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, increase, uh, they increase in riches. Behold, you know, like always at ease, carefree, not a care in this world. And, and by the way, this increase in riches that he's referring to is not just through hard work or, you know, uh, uh, making wise decisions. This increase he's referring to is at your expense. By any means possible. And if it means... You know, you getting in the way and hurting you, so be it. So verses 2 to 12, his gaze is them. Now notice, verses 13 to 24, he turns his focus from them back to himself. You see, this whole psalm is Asaph's prayer. This is his prayer. He's lamenting. He's, he's, I, this is not a good headspace for me to be in. He's getting this off his chest, so to speak. Right? So his gaze from them turns to himself. Notice, I, I, I. Look, look at this. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Solomon says something similar in the book of Ecclesiastes. Clean hands and a pure heart, a vanity of vanity, a chasing after the wind. Man, this is just a waste of time. No, it's not. Right? But he's, so he's struggling here. He's being authentic with his emotions. He's saying, man, that's how I felt in the moment. Verse 14, he says, all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Really? Really, Asaph? All day long? There's that word stricken again. Remember we talked about that. Trouble come upon you suddenly. But look, he, he turns up the volume here. He says, rebuked every morning. 
like, like you know, punished. No, Esaph, no. You know what Jeremiah tells us? In, in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 to 24, God's mercies are new every morning. Asaph, you better snap out of this, man. This is not a good headspace to be in. All right, so he keeps on going. 15. If I had said, quote, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But what's he saying there? He says, you know, you know if I would have just expressed this frustration to, to anybody, those who are maybe you know, immature in the Lord, immature in age, immature in the Lord, I, he, I would have influenced them away from the Lord. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Because he's a leader. People look up to him. You know what he's talking about here in that verse? That's leadership. Right there. Leadership is influenced through relationships towards God's purposes or away. That's it. So he knows that. He says, no, you know, uh, so, so clarity's beginning to set in. He knows, I can't stay in this headspace. i got to make the necessary changes. And then verse 16 and 17 is one thought. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. It's like he's saying, man, I just came to the end of myself here, right? It was wearisome. I gave so much time trying to figure this out. And it was, you know what? It was unfair. It's a struggle over here to be near to God. And those who are near who have gone far away, apparently it's, you know, it's easy street over there. And I was trying to come to terms with this. And it was robbing me of my joy. It was like the wind in my sails were gone. Until means change. I went into the sanctuary of God. So what is he doing? Remember, he's the worship leader in the tabernacle. So he's displaying for us a very powerful principle. Remove those distractions. Go into the sanctuary. Go into the very presence of God. And for us, it's, it's, maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in your, one of your room or your favorite chair early in the morning, late at night. Remove those distractions. Turn the cell phone off. Turn the social media stuff off. And go before God. Here, he's there, he's, he's like face down before God, and he says, I discern their end. So begs the question, do the ends justify the means? That's what he's wrestling with here. Or do the means justify the ends? That's what he's saying here. And he's trying to figure that out. You know what the Apostle Paul says? Listen to this, about discerning their end. Philippians 3.19, he said, their end is destruction. Their God, small g, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. Very similar sentiment. I discern their end. It's not going to end well. That's what he's saying. Now, oh, I love this. Then verse 18, 18 to 24, one continuous thought, okay? Now we, he's in the presence of the Lord. He's in the sanctuary. And it's like we have the privilege of being there with him in the moment. It's like he's saying, okay, come on with me. Pull up a chair. And he's praying. This whole psalm is a prayer before God. He's just, he's just getting this off his chest, and he's expressing his heart before God. And he says in verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places, 
You make them fall to ruin. Those are his thoughts. Right? He's coming clean. He's expressing his emotions at the time. He's saying that. You, you, you set them in slippery the same slippery places that he says in verse 2 that he almost partook of. He almost found himself in that place. Verse 19, he said, How are this day they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors? Again, those are his thoughts. Swept away terrors in, in the ditch of their own disillusionment. Why? Because they put their hopes, these people, as the Apostle Paul says, on earthly things, on their possessions, right? on the here and now. And, what they, and you know the, the interesting thing about stuff and possessions? It, it, you ever notice it? It just seems like there's never enough. Just never enough, right? Just when I seem to master my, my original iPhone, there's 15 more coming out. Now it's iPhone 15. What? What? I didn't know that. And you notice how that, you're made to believe, like, man, you're just missing out, right? You're just, I just got this thing going, I just, and a week from now, I'm, it's already obsolete, as an example. It just never seems to be enough. Just more and more and more. Then verse 20, now he's describing himself here. Look at verse 20. He says, like a dream when one awakes, this is him, God doesn't sleep. So he's talking about himself. He's talking right now in verse 20 of the, the characteristic. This is how he behaved. This is how his thoughts were consumed, clouded, clouded as it were, with envy. Similar to like, you know, when you just wake up in the morning? In that moment where you just, just wake up, you're not fully awake, you're not fully asleep, your kind of mind's kind of cloudy. He said his thoughts were cloudy in the same way. He said, like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. His thoughts, Asaph's thoughts, you arouse yourself, you arise. He said, you despise them as phantoms. I mean, you think very lightly of them, right, Lord? Right? Isn't that right, Lord? Like a phantom, like... Here today, gone tomorrow. Those are his thoughts. And then look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, I, my thoughts were clouded with embittered. There it is. Envy will lead to that, being embittered. Remember what the author of Hebrews tells us about the root of bitterness? Be careful. It takes root in your heart. Very easy. You'd be embittered. He said, when I was pricked in heart, now you see clarity is beginning to set in. The cloud is starting to dissipate. Clarity is beginning to set. And I'm convicted, he said. I was pricked. And I said, man, what am I thinking? Man, i got to snap out of this. What is he says, he describes himself in verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant, like a beast towards you. Man, I just, I just love Asaph's honesty here. He says, I was brutish, like, you know, forceful. He says, and ignorant. Now, ignorant is not the same as ignorance. Ignorance is not knowing any better. Ignorant is knowing better, but choosing not to do it. That's what he's saying. He says, my thoughts were clouded like that, and I was, I was man, I was ignorant. I knew better, but I chose not to. He, says, he goes on to say, it was like a beast towards you, like, like, like an animal. And animals, they're, they're, the whole point of their existence is just to satisfy their instincts. They move from one instinct to the other. He's saying that's how he, he, I was be, he himself was behaving that way. Then look at this. 
Verse 23. Oh, man, I love this. Verse 23. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Hey, isn't that beautiful? Nevertheless, I'm continuing. However, he says, I'm, continu- I'm continuing with you. You hold my right hand. It's like, it's like a picture of a father gra- grabbing their child by the right hand. So what are you doing over here? Come on over here. That's what he's saying. So God was, yeah, and that's a picture of grace. Isn't that beautiful? That's a picture of God's grace. And then he says in verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. Afterwards, you will receive me to glory. You hold me. You guide me. You counsel me. How? Right here. The word of God. That's how. The Holy Spirit uses his word to guide you and hold you and counsel you. Every time you open this book, God speaks to you in the moment. He guides you. He counsels you. This is beautiful, man. This is precious. I love it. He guides you. He counsels you. And by the way, by way of reminder, this is not a self-help book. Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us it's the living, active word of God, dividing joint and marrow, the intention of the heart and your thoughts right here. You think you're going to fool them? You're going to pull one over on them? Give it a shot. Let me know how it works. Look what he goes on to say. You guide me. Now, his focus on them, them, turns to himself. I, I, and now verses 25 to 28, the verses that Pastor Garth just read for us. Look where his focus is now. Where it always should have been. On God. From them to himself to God. Refocus, refocus back on God. Look what he says. He's going to talk about his desire here in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? Rhetorical question, but he answers it. There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. We've come full circle. From verse 1, he's come full circle. There's, there's no place else to go. I have no, no place else to go. Why would I even think about going anywhere else? There's no one on this earth, there's nothing on earth, this earth that I desire besides you. Remember? Desire linked to my identity as a child of God. He, he almost, he almost, almost, he almost left that and went over there. No, nope. he's talking about his, his desire. Now look, verse 28, he's going to talk about his, his hope. He says, my flesh, my heart may fail. Okay? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So his physical strength wanes day to day to day. Yeah, that's true. But his spiritual strength is getting stronger. How? Remember what Nehemiah tells us? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Amen. I'm not making this up, folks. I am not making this up. This is right here in God's Word. You can believe it or not. It's up to you. But there are consequences that come with that. 
So he talks about his desire, talks about his hope. Verse 27, now he's going to talk about motivation. Look what he says. He says, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfruitful to you. You know what he's saying? You know, just like, just like it can be for those folks who, who have a lot, maybe their possessions and they're prosperous, as he describes here, they can become a little bit arrogant about that. Well, let me, share, let me, just, let me just warn us in here. We too can become arrogant about the one who possesses us. Our relationship with God restored through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. We know that, right? But then we can become a little smug. Come on, man, I've done it myself. And we've seen those people. Maybe there's people who even attended here. Who's, where are they? We don't see them anymore. Or friends, or family, or, or whatever it might be. And those who are far, far from the Lord have, have never trusted God. And we can look down upon that, and maybe they're doing all right. Maybe things are going pretty good for, them, for themselves. And then we can kind of draw the conclusion pretty quick, saying, yeah, that's okay. You, you'll see, you're going to get what's coming to you. So it's good now, but you, you wait. Maybe you think that way in your mind. That's not good, man. That's not good. We don't want to be that way. What do we do? We want to reach out. We want to reach out. So here are the five D's for outreach. Number one, devote. Devote yourself to prayer and God's word. It begins there and it ends there. Number two, direct. As you're doing that, ask God, God, please, direct my heart to lostness. To those who are far removed from you, maybe once near and now far, or maybe have never tasted that the Lord is good. And then we develop relationships. You think of it like, like, like an account, right? Like I deposit in and then I draw from. It's equity, relational equity after time. And those people know that you, you actually have their best interest at heart. So you develop that relationship so that you can declare the goodness of God, the gospel. And then finally, we disciple, who make disciples, who make disciples, and plant churches, and and, and keep moving. Then he says, look at this, his last verse. So he's talking about his desire, his hope, his motivation. Verse 28, his faith. Love this. He said, but for me, it's good to be near God. Tov, orderly, as it should be. Near, not far, near, near. Almost, almost cashed in my chips here and went over there, almost. But it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, ever-present help in times of trouble that I may tell of your works. He's talking about his faith. Right? So it's crucial that we refocus because we can get our vision distorted. Refocus back on God. As we wrap up this morning, let's let King David, contemporary of Asaph, Let's let King David have the final word this morning, okay? 
David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23. Join me as we close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you. My brothers and sisters in this room, the warm welcome that Elizabeth and I have had is beautiful. Thank you for your word and for the challenge that we have. Yes, our gaze can be, our, 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 what we see can so distort our vision. Our gaze can be outward towards them, and then we need to look inside. So we'll stop complaining and be thankful. Stop being judgmental and seek personal confession. Stop in despair and seek discernment. Know the times and the seasons. And then we move forward, Lord. Thank you for your reminder to refocus back on God because the best days lie ahead. All for your glory, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's sermon. For more information about our church, visit tgcw.org.